Torah Resource presents the Rob and Caleb Show. All aboard! And now, from two sides of the same state, here they are, Rob and Caleb. Oh, what up and shalom. Welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show. My name is Caleb Hegg, and with me, as always, my friend, my teacher, my mentor, Rob Van Hoff. What up, Rob? Hi, Caleb. Shalom. How's it going? It's going very well. Yeah? I uh, ha- have to do share that uh, this last Shabbat, I got to meet uh, the self-proclaimed listener number 36. Ah, yes. And that his would be? His name's Aaron. We had a wonderful uh, time together on Shabbat. He was in from out of town. Um, we sat and chatted for quite a bit, and it was just such a blessing to me, and uh, I was encouraged in our our fun little project that we do here every week, uh, just to to keep at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, hi, Aaron. Thanks Aaron. for visiting. You're welcome anytime to come by. Aaron's from my neck of the woods, right? I think he said he lives north of Portland, so somewhere probably between you and and Portland. Yes, I know Aaron actually. So, hi, Aaron, and uh, yeah, hi all of you. Welcome to the Robin Caleb Show. Uh, we're going to have a lot of fun today. At least I hope we are. I've been looking forward to this uh, to this week's uh, show for well a whole week, and uh, I hope that everyone else is going to have a good time as well. Um, but first, let's get to the ways that you can be a part of the conversation. You can email us radio at torresource dot com. That's radio at torresource dot com. You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Caleb Hag two G's in Hag. And you can follow Rob Van Hoff. He's at Rob Van Hoff, two F's in Van Hoff. And yeah, I've been having some good conversation uh, over the Twitter in the past week. And I actually have even had some conver- just very, very little interaction with uh, Chris Roseborough. I really hope I'm saying his name right. Uh, we're going to find out here in, in a few minutes because today uh, we're going to interview Chris Roseborough. He was the person who debated against Jim Staley uh, in the debate that happened about a week and a half ago, almost two weeks ago, entitled, Should Christians Keep the Sabbath? And Chris uh, was the person who took up the side that Christians should not be keeping the Sabbath. And so uh, we interviewed Jim Staley last week. You can go back and listen to that. Uh, Actually, can you? I suppose you can't anymore since it's Thursday. Uh, So if you missed it, uh, you're out of luck. You're going to have to get a full access pass if you want to hear it. But that's okay. If you did hear it, then you know what I'm talking about. Uh, So we interviewed Jim Staley last week, and I don't like to be one-sided. I like to hear both sides of the argument. And so I thought it was only fair that if we had Jim Staley on our radio program, that we should also have Chris Roseborough, who he debated. Now, obviously, we don't agree with uh, everything that either of these gentlemen say, Uh, But we definitely agree with Jim Staley on this issue. We do believe that the Torah uh, tells us to keep the Sabbath and that we should do so. And so we're more on Jim Staley's point of view, uh, in this argument at least. Uh, But that doesn't mean that uh, we don't share some commonalities also with Chris, uh, who we're going to have on here in just a few seconds. And uh, Chris is, I believe, and we're going we're gonna to talk to him about this, but I believe that Chris is a Lutheran. 
And so uh, we're going to try to get to the bottom a little bit more of, of his theology at the very beginning of our uh, of our interview with him so that we can uh, kind of see where he's coming from theologically. And then we'll ask him uh, specifically about the debate that ensued. Okay, so our guest today is Chris Rosebro. And uh, Chris is a Christian apologist, captain of Pirate Christian Radio, host of the Fighting for the Faith radio program, and pastor of Kongsvinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota. How are you doing, Chris? Doing well. How are you guys today? Good. Is it okay if I call you Chris? Yeah, in fact, uh, that's what I prefer to call you call me. If you call me Christopher Michael, that means you're angry at me. At least that's what my mom taught me when I was growing up. So no one ever uses my middle name unless they're, I've really upset them. All right, fair enough. All right, so um, before we get to the actual, talking about the actual debate, um, I want to clear up just a few things in terms of the Sabbath and your view of the Sabbath. Um, uh-huh. So... I, and I, I know that you, you listened to my inter, the interview that we did with uh, Staley last week. Uh, so let me first ask the question that I said I was going to ask you, which is, do you believe that the physical descendants of Jacob should uh, be keeping the Sabbath today? Um, I, I don't think anybody can keep the Messianic, or the, sorry, the uh, Mosaic Covenant today. So that's kind of a, it's kind of a funky question because I see it as kind of a category error in this sense, that the Mosaic Covenant was always meant to be provisional, until the seed, that's Christ, appeared. And so because uh, the, the Mosaic Covenant itself works as a unit, and it's impossible for anybody to actually keep the Mosaic Covenant. For instance, um, the sacrificial system is absolutely impossible today without the, uh, the temple. Uh, no one's capable of keeping the, uh, the Mosaic Covenant. It's, uh, it's, it's passed into history. Okay, so but um, then, do you believe you know we you use the word the Lord's Day and and uh, the, you know it seems to me that you believe that the Sabbath was uh, taken away with and that the Lord's Day was instituted uh, for Christians. Do you believe that the Christian uh, pe- people who believe in in Jesus should be keeping uh, as it were the the Sabbath on Sunday, or do you believe that it's completely changed? It's, it's actually kind of a category error. And so the idea then is this, is that uh, under the Mosaic Covenant, you have a commandment regarding the Sabbath rest, okay? Now, that normatively also became the time when people would meet in the synagogue, but the general uh, commandment regarding the Sabbath is that it be a day of rest, it be a day of not working. Um, you know, whereas the, the Lord's Day, when you look in church history, um, and you look, you know, I would even say argue from the New Testament, uh, the Lord's Day is the day that normatively became the day when Christians would gather together to hear God's Word, to partake of the Lord's Supper, to you know hear the apostolic preaching and teaching, and dedicate themselves to the prayers, as well as caring for one another. That was normatively the day that they did that, and it was it's not synonymous with the commandment uh, regarding the Sabbath rest. That's actually, again, it, it, to actually kind of compare the two or overlap them in that way, is to not pay attention to what the commands were regarding the Sabbath itself. Okay, so just to be clear, uh, you don't think that there's anything wrong with a Christian, say, going to the mall on Sunday after church? I, no, no, absolutely not. Um, although, there, i, I got to admit, there are, there are, you, know, you look at the Puritan uh, tradition or some of the people kind of in uh, covenantal Presbyterianism, they see the commands regarding the rest to somehow then apply to 
uh, Sunday, and I, I think that's a that's a misreading of the text and a misunderstanding of of what's happening under the new covenant. Now, Chris, I actually kind of did this out of order. I should I should have asked you first to kind of uh, give us a, an idea of, of who you are. Uh, I introduced you with you're the captain of of Pirate Christian Radio. Why don't you explain for us for a few seconds? That made me want to say R. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> why don't you explain to us what that is? I mean, is it uh, and and why Pirate Christian Radio? Yeah, I get that question a lot, because normally pirates and Christians don't necessarily go together. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea is is that um, this is now going on six, seven years ago. Well, we've, we've been broadcasting as an Internet-based station uh, for six years at the end of June. But uh, prior to that, in the year leading up to when we launched Pirate Christian Radio, I had some ideas for uh, uh, radio programming, and I actually met with uh, an executive, a radio executive with one of the major Christian networks, and told him, you know, here's my ideas. You know, I see a need here in uh, Christian broadcasting based upon how the content of Christian broadcasting had changed in the course of my lifetime. I actually <clears throat> am old enough to remember what Christian radio sounded like in the 80s, but that's a completely different story. Mm-hmm. But uh, And I've noticed that there's been a huge move in the type of programming that uh, takes place in, in, uh, in you know, Christian, popular Christian terrestrial stations that generally is more along the lines of what uh, one, uh, one scholar calls moralistic therapeutic deism, as opposed to straight-up good Christian apologetics and theology and things like that. And so after pitching you know, the, uh, the radio show ideas to him, you know, it, it, I wasn't necessarily looking for them to air the state, you know, air the programs, but I really wanted his feedback as to whether or not that would really work. Mm-hmm. And he looked me dead in the face and said, "Yeah, there's no way what you have in mind for for your radio programs would fly with our audience, and um, it just wouldn't work." And uh, explained to me who their target demographic was. You know, kind of a you know a, a middle-aged woman in her late 30s who generally just wants to get along and isn't looking for anything combative or things like that. She's looking for advice on how to make her life better. And so when I was told that that wasn't going to work, you know, I I had the idea, well, pirate stations are pretty well established as an idea that they are stations that broadcast outside of the system. In fact, my mom likes to tell the story. She grew up, part of her uh, childhood was spent in Europe, and uh, she lived at uh, Oxford. Her father was uh, at the, uh, uh, the air station in Oxford, and uh, she used to listen to a pirate station, which was a radio station on a Liberty ship that was broadcasting just, you know, inside international waters in the British Channel, and that's where she would listen to her radio uh, rather than the BBC channels. And so, you know, all of that, you know, being said, is that you thought, you know, what the way things are going, you know, what needs to be said doesn't sound like it's going to be said in the standard system. So. Uh, the, the, the name Pirate Christian Radio was born then, the idea that we were going to be a pirate station broadcasting outside of the established Christian radio system uh, in order to say what needs to be said. And, uh, you know, that, that's kind of, that's the dawn of it. So it's not that I'm into pirates or I like wearing weird, funky hats. <laughs> you don't go to Renaissance that. fairs? <laughs> no, no, I, I, I'm quite the nerd. Um, although those nerds would do such things, um, uh, and they generally do, I have never really been into the role-playing kind of thing. So, no, I, I wear T-shirts and, and uh, shorts during the summer, and during the winter I put on uh, you know, Levi's, and I and I wear thermal underwear. I, I'm 
pretty, you know, in fact, <laughs> I've got a face and a body for radio, so, you know, that's how it works for me. Okay, so Chris, if I, if I may, I, I appreciate the history there that you're sharing uh, so that this idea of the pirate radio goes back, of course, uh, to that wonderful story you shared uh, uh, about your mother. And um, I was wondering, you, you mentioned uh, kind of this trouble, you know, the troubling things you've seen or troubling trend maybe a downward spiral, of, spiral of, of Christian radio content into, I think you said something like a, a moralist uh, deism or something. I was wondering if you could just take a minute and unpack your view of, of that issue. Yeah, it, here, here's the idea. Is, uh, again, it's, I think it's Christian Smith's term, and uh, you know, he actually published a study along this line talking about what it is that American, particularly uh, youth, believe in American evangelicalism, and he can only describe it as moralistic, therapeutic deism, as opposed to Christian theology. And what I've noticed in general evangelicalism is a complete moving away from any in-depth study of what Scripture says. And even though we're awash in Bibles, I mean, we've got uh, you know all these different translations that, for the most part, are pretty decent. You know, and you can, and with all these online study resources and stuff like that, people still are not really studying God's Word, and as a result of it, they have no clue what it says, what it, we're supposed to believe, and they're kind of bringing their own ideas to the table. And I think this is, uh, in part, uh, not only responsible for, as a result of uh, Christian broadcasting, but I think Christian broadcasting is following kind of the bigger trend in evangelicalism, and that's in small group Bible studies, gathering together and, and reading a few verses and then asking that question, what does this verse mean to you? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is to relativize the text and uh, to not pay attention to what God the Holy Spirit has meant for that text to say. It doesn't matter what it means to you. The question is, what did God reveal? What did he say? What is the text about? And as, uh, as uh, evangelicalism has slipped more and more into this kind of postmodern way of reading the text and bending it to their own experience or what it means to them as opposed to what it says, uh, Christianity and evangelicalism has uh, really, really um, wandered far from what God's Word actually says. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Christian Smith. You know, I, in, in graduate school I read uh, Moral Believing Animals, and that's, that was before it was even on my radar that, uh, you know, he didn't really broadcast his own faith. It was very much a uh, sociological method, you know, in, in that time. Uh, but, of course, subsequently I've learned of his continued to study, like you mentioned, the, the study uh, with American youth, I think, in the, in, in, within evangelical circles. Uh, but then recently, I guess, you know, with this as a, a kind of his own personal journey, a response to this postmodern, you know, reading uh, problem, that, that is writing our own, you know, answering our own needs rather than seeing what God says about us, you know, that, that you describe, uh, but that he actually found uh, uh, in the Catholic Church the, the traditional authority structure that resolved for him some of those issues. Have you, have, have, have you followed through on his thinking along those lines? Yeah, um, and yeah, I, I can't I can't swim the Tiber with him. Um, yeah, the the solution is not found in the uh, Roman Catholic Magisterium. Although the, I understand logically that's a really easy out. Um, that's just not that's not a possibility. I'm sorry that 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 leaves you under the uh, authority of the uh, Bishop of Rome, uh, not under the authority of the Word of God. So I can't follow him in that sense. In fact, I would argue that 
uh, Roman Catholicism is an oxymoron. Catholicism, uh, it, you know, the word Catholic means universal. Universal, so, right, yeah. And Rome is a province. So, the, you know, to say that you believe that you're a Roman Catholic, <laughs> that's oxymoronic. And uh, Roman Catholic theology is not Catholic. It's unique to uh, the Roman system. And as a result of it, I, I can't swim the Tiber. I can't go to Rome because uh, they don't believe, teach, and confess historically what the Catholic Church has believed, taught, and confessed. And so uh, I can't join Christian Smith in his, uh, in his swimming of the Tiber. Okay, so we're talking, we're talking about the Catholic Church, and of course Luther was one who fought strongly against the, uh, the, the Catholic Church. And uh, I know that you are, in fact, a Lutheran, so I'm, I, I want to I set this up so that you kind of have a platform to be able to talk more about the debate. Uh, but to do so, let's, let's get, get a little bit of, uh, let's give our listeners a little bit of an idea of where you're coming from. As a Lutheran, I can only assume that you don't hold to a dispensational theology. Is that correct? That's correct, and we do not hold to uh, what we call chiliasm, which would be this belief uh, in a coming thousand-year physical reign of Christ. Uh, you, Lutherans are historically uh, more akin to, although somewhat different from, uh, the amillennial view eschatologically. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, we're going to talk about esch- uh, eschatological uh, things here in a, in a little bit. Um, but before we do that, I did hear a radio interview that you did, oh, I don't know, maybe a week ago. And mm-hmm. uh, so I, I, I've asked this to just a, a, a significant amount of people that we have interviewed, including N.T. Wright and Dr. Paul Wagner and, and others. Um, but do you view that the laws of Torah were divided into three categories, namely civil, ceremonial, and moral? No. Okay. Um, I, I, you can't do that. Um, yeah, let, let's, so let's talk about that real quick. The, the Mosaic Covenant itself is a unit. It works as a unit. For you to tax, you can say within the taxonomy of the big unit itself, you can discuss civil, ceremonial, and uh, civil laws. However, um, that I, I find those distinctions not only not found in scripture mm-hmm. um, you know they're they're contrary to even the way that the, the the apostles themselves discuss the mosaic covenant and so although i find them useful in helping to explain when we talk about continuity and discontinuity between the mosaic covenant and the new covenant uh, the morals found in the mosaic covenant and the morals found in the new covenant uh... for a layperson that is a useful distinction but it's not a biblical distinction and uh... in a conversation like this um, I think it should be avoided. The Mosaic Covenant is a unit. It comes together as a unit. You cannot tear it apart. It is uh, written on stone, if you would. Okay, so so hopefully that, that'll uh, set up a little bit of, of where you're coming theologically for our listeners. So let's move now to the debate. Uh, as I, I said to, to Staley last week, I'm going to basically ask you the same question. I tend to think that uh, coming out of debates, uh, each side thinks that they've won the debate, quote-unquote won the debate, and so why don't you give us your general thoughts of the debate? Do, uh, you know, who won the debate? Do you think uh, you did, did well and that you came out victorious? Um, I, I think it would be presumptuous of me to say that I won the debate. I will say this. I accomplished what I set out to accomplish, and uh, my goal in the debate was to set up, uh, you know, via the conversation, that, you know, using the format, uh, to the ability for people to see two completely distinct ways of approaching Scripture, mm-hmm. and for them then to go and do the homework and see who is rightly handling God's Word. That was my goal, and, um, and the nice thing about it is, is that 
what happened in the debate is that Jim put forward a completely different theological system than what I put forward, and you know, both of us were arguing Scripture. So the question now is, you know, to the people out there, uh, who was correctly handling God's Word? Because logically you, have, you really have a couple of choices. Jim was handling God's Word correctly, I was handling God's Word correctly, or neither of us were handling God's Word correctly. Those are your logical choices. And so going into a teaching environment like that, with the kind of the limitations of the format, um, you know, I, I, I think it's kind of silly to sit there and say, I won, because here's the deal. The reality is, is that the people in my listening audience, they're going to say Chris won. Mm -hmm. People in Jim Staley's listening audience are going to say Jim Staley won. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and if you look, you know, I've been following the conversations in several places, and that's pretty much how it's panned out. Yeah. But I consider that to be useless. Okay, the question is, who, who was rightly handling God's Word? That's a completely different question, and it's up to everybody who listened to the debate to open up their Bibles and to test these things. And so um, my goal was to set it up in such a way that two completely different views were put forward, two completely different arguments were put forward, uh, in such a way that my hope would be that those people who uh, are in Jim's audience would be challenged and dig into scriptures to see if what I was saying is true. And also my hope is that uh, the people in my audience, having never been exposed to Jim's arguments and the way he uh, matrixes the Bible, would say, okay, I got to text to see if this guy's rightly handling God's word in church history, and if his explanation makes sense with the with the facts and the data. That that was my goal, and with that being the case, I think I achieved my goal. So then, I also asked Jim this question, and ask you too. Since the debate was hosted at Passion for Truth, and since it seems like, at least from my vantage point, most of the people in the audience uh, were Sabbath people who keep the Sabbath, do you mm -hmm. feel like uh, like you were at any kind of a disadvantage? You know, I guess technically I was supposed to be at a disadvantage <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, because I mean it's on his turf with his people, and and. Uh, the, understand this. There were people from my audience who were there because I had the opportunity to advertise the debate. And so um, I, I, I just, I've gotten to the point where my, my hide is so thick, it, I don't really kind of think in those terms. I mean, uh, psychologically, I guess I was supposed to be at a disadvantage, but I didn't see it as that. I saw it as an opportunity to share God's Word. And so I, you know, as, a, as kind of a an old-school street fighter apologist who earned his stripes, you know, doing counter-cult ministry with Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. Um, I'm used to kind of being in heated conversations and stuff like that, and, and the reality was is that I actually felt pretty relaxed during the, the whole time, and my focus was really on making sure that I communicated what I set out to communicate and uh, stick with the arguments that I had set up long before I ever entered the property, and I think I still pulled that off. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm going to move now uh, uh, to, to some of the things that I've found on social media. And some of the comments left on social media, it was said that you rested heavily on the Church Fathers. One person said, and I quote, if we needed the Church Fathers to prop properly interpret the Scriptures, they would be part of our canon. What do you say to someone who says that your argument is based too heavily on the Church Fathers? I understand, I understand the argument, um, and I would say go back and re-listen to, re to my opening argument and my first rebuttal, because my opening argument was basically, from beginning to end, a biblical argument. Uh, rebuttal number one, which was ten minutes long, 
I focused on the Church Fathers for this specific reason, not because what they said is authoritative. I do not believe that Martin Luther is authoritative. I do not believe that any Church Father is authoritative, and, you know, that Scripture alone is authoritative. Mm -hmm. The reason why I brought the Church Fathers up is because we've got a problem, and we have to come up with a plausible explanation regarding the problem. And that is this, is that if you believe that Christians are required to keep the Mosaic Covenant, including the commandment regarding the Sabbath, you've got a problem, and that is is that the early Church Fathers, and I mean the earliest ones, I can point you to the Epistle of Barnabas, the writings of Irenaeus in his uh, Demonstratio Evangelica, as well as, uh, you know, you've got Justin Martyr as, and others, they all make it clear that, that, that as Christians, and this is prior to Constantine, that they're not Sabbath keepers. And so you have to come up with an explanation for this. And, you know, in Jim's opening argument, his explanation regarding why there's this change relies heavily on something that's very much akin to kind of a Da Vinci Code-esque uh, conspiracy theory. You know, the Church and the State under Constantine colluded together, flexed their political religious muscles, and forced all of these unwitting, innocent Sabbath keepers now to keep the Lord's Day. That's one explanation. And I would say that that explanation doesn't fit with the facts, because when you read the early Church Fathers, they are acting... And you got to work with me here. They're acting in accord with the same reading of Scripture that I gave in my opening argument. So the reason why I brought the Church Fathers in, and albeit it was a little heavy, was to take away the historical argument that uh, Jim Staley had and basically say, listen, the reason why the Church Fathers are saying these things, and they're saying these things in the late 1st century, early 2nd century, is because they, like me, understand that the Mosaic Covenant has been fulfilled, that it has been brought to an end, and that the New Covenant is now in place, and that we're no longer under the Mosaic Covenant. And so that's the reason why they're saying these things. Okay, so, so w- wait, uh, l- l- let me just build on this for a few seconds, because I, wa- I want to make sure that I'm, I'm understanding you. Uh, now, uh, granted, I, I'll, I'll totally agree with you, I, I see that within the Church Fathers, and there's uh, two issues I want to just kind of have you explain for me so that I can, I can better understand. Uh, you're not suggesting that there's no evidence that there were groups of Christians uh, or believers in Jesus that kept the Sabbath, right? I mean, we it, will you admit that the, it does seem that there is uh, certain groups or sects that did did continue to keep the Sabbath? Oh yeah, absolutely. In fact, what you see is in the course of the first century and on into the early part of the second century. Um, there, there's like a, there's a period of overlap, especially uh, within like the Jerusalem Church uh, and the churches in uh, in Israel uh, prior to uh, the fall of the temple. You, there's a lot of overlap, but it, it, I guess a good way to be you know to make the analogy is if you were to think of the Lord's Day as like the sun, uh, it comes up and it be, and it rises to its high place. And so you see that within the, the writings of the Church Fathers and the history of the Church. The idea being is that um, even, though, even early on, though, you, you not only see Sabbath keepers, but you also see people who are celebrating the Lord's Day. It's kind of a twin thing that's going on early on in the history. And then eventually the Sabbath keeping falls out, which is you know, to be expected especially since it's completely impossible to keep the Mosaic Covenant, you know, this day. There were people who, I mean, the Apostle Paul, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 9, talks about the fact that although he's not under the law, for the sake of the Jews, 
he, he puts himself under the law for their sake in order to win them. So in Christian freedom, we can keep the Sabbath. If you, if you want to keep the Sabbath, you can do that completely within Christian freedom. It's not a commandment. It's something that you are free to do. And you're, you're, you can consider all days alike, or you can you know, hallow one particular day. The idea is, is that under the New Covenant, uh, there's no specific command to hallow any particular day at all. And so you have freedom to hallow one or another or not to hallow any if you don't want to. So, okay, I'm going to move a little bit now. Um, I'm, I know that you're aware of this clip that has been going around on the Internet. I think it was a little bit distasteful. Um, and it's, uh, I, I believe it's entitled The Moment That Staley Won the, won the Debate. I also saw that someone actually posted a link of that in a uh, happy birthday thread to you on your Facebook page, which I thought was completely distasteful. And, uh, oh, listen, listen, listen. I, I, I do not have a problem with that. Listen, <laughs> you know, I, I spend most of my career, you know, on radio, you know, offering critiques. And if somebody wants to fire back, listen, that's completely within the, the fair rules. And so I actually thought the video was hilarious. Okay, well, actually, before, before we get into that, because I, I want you to talk about that, but I want to actually play, uh, that clip stops before uh, you actually give your answer to that. So, in all fairness, I want to play uh, your, your answer to the clip. If you, uh, if you are unaware of what I'm talking about, we played this clip last week on our, for, our, for our listeners. We played this, this clip last week on our, on our uh, show, but now I'm going to play what you missed after that, because this is uh, what continued after that clip. Here it is. You just said that you were part of Israel. Yes. You also said that the covenant of the Sabbath was only given to Israel. So by extension, that would mean that you were under the law and jurisdiction of the Sabbath. No, absolutely not, because Scripture makes it clear that the old covenant has passed away. But the new covenant is given to Israel. That's correct. The new covenant is given to Israel. Okay. And you are... I'm part of Israel. Israel, correct. Okay, okay. So we're going to actually talk about the idea that the that the uh, old covenant has passed away. But uh, do you think that 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 moment in the debate was that uh, a notch on in the win section for for Staley, or or do you not see it that way? Um, listen, cause what was really funny is is that um, prior to that, I wish you'd played the thing you know to the front of it. It's the the way he phrased the question. You know, it, it kind of caught me off guard, and so I actually needed him to restate the, the question. Mm-hmm. And the way it was done, it, it looked like he had scored a point. And so, you know, listen, you know, give give people you know a prop here. I mean, it's like you know, I don't I don't know everything. And part of the the challenge in a debate like this is that although I've studied Jim and his theology, I don't know all of the nuances, and I don't know exactly how his biblical matrix matrix works and all of its intricacies. And so at the moment, it was actually very funny uh, that, you know, I, it looked like I had been caught flat-footed and that he had somehow scored a point. You know, it, it, you know from the point of view, you got to understand, it, in, it, from the point of view of the audience, is that um, there's different criteria that they're judging who won or who lost the debate on, and they thought that Jim had, had scored a point. Um, I would basically say, content-wise, that really wasn't, a, a win psychologically it might have appeared that way mm-hmm. but i mean that's just part of the rough and tumble atmosphere of a debate so um you know but from con from the, uh, the point of the content he's still trying to figure out my biblical matrix in all of this as well and uh, what i mean by that is is that i have no problem saying that i'm grafted into israel and now understand romans 11 is a little bit of a tough passage 
to to exegete because it's a little bit un it, it, when you read the passage it's a little bit unsure as to who is grafted into whom and what I mean by that is does Roman Romans eleven say that wild olive branches are grafted into Israel or does Roman eleven Romans eleven teach that all branches both cultivated and wild are grafted into Christ and that's that and that was a nuance that I knew I couldn't really get into in that debate. And so because I think the clearer passages make it clear that, uh, you know, uh, in Romans, I think Romans 9, it says that not all Israel is Israel. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go with that and basically say, listen, anybody who truly is in Christ, who, is, who has the same faith as Abraham, and that's kind of the, the other issue in all of this, that they, are, that they are technically part of Israel. So I'm in Israel. Now the question has, comes in, is the new Israel under the old Mosaic Covenant, or is the new Israel under the new covenant? And so the, the follow-up, you know, the follow-up after that, you know, funny little section, uh, I think, you know, bears, you know, and I'm glad you brought that up as well, has to be played out, because we're still kind of clarifying uh, to each other, you know, our position. And so I, I thought his question was an honest question, and he was asking it from his point of view and the way he matrixes the Bible, and I didn't quite get where he was coming from, and then when he redirected and expanded the question, I was able to answer it. So I think it was an important moment in the debate, but to you have to kind of see it in its entirety, but also understand there are people who are they're going to come watch the debate, and they're going to be rooting for Jim, and they're going to see that as a win. And I don't have a problem with that, mm-hmm. um, because, um, I mean, you know, maybe what I should have done is, is not look like I was caught flat-footed, but the thing is, I'm just going to be who I am, and... Um, I didn't quite get where he was coming from, and I can't help but wear my emotions on my sleeve. So uh, you, you get what I'm saying? Absolutely. And actually, we're going to move uh, to uh, the idea of the Old Covenant passing away. And uh, actually, we're also going to talk about the, the book of Hebrews here coming up in just a second. But before I do that, I want to ask you, since we're kind of talking about moments in the debate right now, is there anything that you wish that you would have said differently, or is there anything that you wish you would have had to- more time to say? And, uh, you know, to, basically, I want to give you the platform. What uh, do you wish could have, you could have uh, conveyed more of or differently uh, to, to the audience during the debate? Yeah, in uh, my second rebuttal, um, I wish that I had addressed uh, the Genesis 2 passage. I made a conscious decision not to do it because I thought it would be too complicated in the, in the debate to actually address it. And so I made a tactical decision to not address that. And now, looking back on it, I think I should have. I should have, uh, there, there, there was one, maybe two things that I brought up in my second rebuttal that I probably would have shelved and it would have been stronger for me to tackle the Genesis 2 ta- passage straight up. And the issue behind the Genesis 2 passage is that Jim was basically talking about uh, the Sabbath, which is mentioned in the opening portion of Genesis chapter 2, as if it's a commandment. The problem is is that that is a uh, historical narrative descriptive text, and there's no prescription in Genesis 2 to obey the Sabbath, which is the reason why you don't see Adam being a Sabbath keeper, or Abel, or Seth, or Noah, or Abraham, or Isaac, or Yaakov, or any of those guys. And so, um, because I didn't challenge it in the debate, I think that was one of those lingering questions that people would have preferred that I answered during the debate. And I think I made a tactical error by not addressing that, but that was a decision I made in in the moment. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, So, uh, Rob, are you good for right now? We're going to get into the book of Hebrews. So, uh, anything to add here, or you want to jump in? I don't know if it's too far afield, but I'd be interested in, in Chris, uh, hearing your thoughts on, now this is kind of 
way off track from your line of thinking, Caleb, maybe, but <laughs> Chris, no, no your thoughts on the, the place of debate uh, within the body of Messiah um, today, you know, given all this, you know, the internet, the, that sea of, of uh, information out there that you mentioned earlier that people get uh, disoriented and don't even, uh, you know, they're so distracted with all these other Christian books or, you know, that they never really get to the heart of the scriptures. I was wondering how you see debate as a specific means of helping audiences, um, challenging them and, uh, kind of hopefully steering them into the scriptures. Okay. Good question. Um, I think debate is important if it's done right. And the thing I liked about this debate is that there, it wasn't done with acrimony. And, um, and so, you know, we both presented two completely different sides, but, you know, I, you know, I didn't call Jim Staley a gunky head, and he didn't call me a gunky head. And so as a result of it, we were able to have a theological conversation and put forward two completely different ideas. And in the world of instant information in the Internet, what a debate provides is the uh, ability for somebody's theological position to experience a real cross-examination. Um, in the moment. And so, there, you know, that's what I think is important, is because it's one thing to put together a theological argument and cherry-pick sound bites or cherry-pick ideas that could, in fact, be straw men, and then build a theology without anybody, uh, you know, without offering anybody the ability, you know, in a scholastic, academic, true biblical, brotherly sense, provide a rebuttal or a cross-examination to see if that holds up. And so I think debates done well that center on a, on a topic and allow real cross-examination are beneficial to the body of Christ. Debates that are bad, and I've seen some pretty nasty ones in my time, mm-hmm. are ones that get bogged down and ultimately result in almost kind of like political mudslinging. You know, my opponent, you know, we all know that he's, he kills and eats babies the, during the <laughs> weekend and therefore don't vote for him. I mean, that, that doesn't, doesn't help anybody. And uh, the thing I liked about the debate that Jim and I had is that it didn't resort down to that. And uh, we, we were able to stay on point and on topic and keep the conversation above that. So I think in that sense, debates that can do that are beneficial to the body of Christ. So, okay, let's move now to the book of Hebrews. And actually, last week when we, when we talked to Staley, I brought up uh, 8.13, Hebrews 8.13. And I don't actually think, to be completely fr- fair to you, Chris, I don't think that you actually referenced 8.13 in your opening remarks. I think you referenced some other uh, passages within Hebrews, uh, but uh-huh. not that specific passage. However, uh, you did kind of, uh, uh, re- you did respond to, to something that I said on Twitter, and so let's talk about that. I've actually written out this, this question uh, just so that I can uh, state it somewhat eloquently. Uh, in your opening <laughs> remarks, you quoted the book of Hebrews and used several passages to show that the new covenant has replaced the old covenant, even though the phrase old covenant is not found in the book of Hebrews. Staley contends that when the book of Hebrews says the old, it is referring to the priesthood. Can you explain why you believe this is a false interpretation? Yeah, because the whole, the whole gist, not only of the book of Hebrews, okay, and you understand the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish Christians who were really uh, at the point of like going back to the smells and bells of uh, of Judaism, and so this is a call back, a call for them to come back to the new covenant, and and it gives us the fullest explanation of the idea that is that the old covenant was temporary, 
that all of it was type and shadow, and that the reality, the substance, is Christ. In fact, the opening statement in the book of Hebrews uh, that begins long ago and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things. That sets the whole tone here. And so I understand Jim's position is, is that he's got to try to find a way to get away from the clear language of the book of Hebrews, but he, here's the idea, is that Scripture interprets Scripture. And so when we, when we look at, like, Hebrews 8.13, and, uh, you know, it says, in speaking of a, of a new, he makes the first obsolete. That's, you know, that's kind of a, a rough translation of the, uh, of the Greek there. But the antecedent is, is very clear, because uh, in speaking of the new, lege uh, kainen, uh, uh, the new, that's an adjective, and it, in, in Greek it has to have an antecedent, otherwise you don't know what's going on. And the author of uh, Hebrews, if you've translated the book of Hebrews, that is some of the most polished Greek in all of the New Testament. Whoever wrote this thing knew what they were doing when it comes to the Greek language. Um, and so the, 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 the reference here is talking about, the, talking about the new, you know, we'll talk about the new what? In the in preceding verses, it's talking about the covenants. And so it's talking about the New Covenant as opposed to the Old Covenant, the, the First Covenant. And it makes it very clear that the Old Covenant, the first one, is obsolete, growing old, and is ready to vanish away. And then yeah, I would just add into that, when you cross-reference that with the other clear passages on this text, uh, for instance, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3, uh, chapter 3, sorry, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 11, here's what Paul says. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, no mistake as to what he's talking about there, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, uh, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it. And so it's talking about the fact that the Mosaic Covenant, the one carved in stone, has been brought to an end. This is what makes sense, then. And this is what also gives explanatory power as to why Paul, in Colossians 2, talks to the Colossians, says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Why the whole book of Galatians is written against the Judaizing heresy, which is not just merely this idea that you add works to salvation, because starting in Galatians chapter 3, Paul makes a very clear distinction in Galatians chapter 3 that what's going on there is not just that they, the Judaizers were believing that they have to keep the Mosaic Covenant in order to be saved, but that they were also trying to be sanctified by keeping the Mosaic Covenant, which is why Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you is before your eyes that Christ was portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh. Galatians 3, in fact, that's kind of the transition there, is not just talking about the uh, a salvation issue, but also a sanctification issue, and pointing out the fact that we are no longer under the covenant that makes slaves, that we are children of the freed woman. This is the whole dichotomy between the slave and the free woman uh, in, the, in uh, chapters 3 and 4. And so the idea is, is that in Hebrews, it, the, the whole gist of the argument is, is that we are no longer under the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. It was always intended to be provisional. This is why Paul in Galatians talks about the fact that, um, that you know, it was added because of sin until the seed, Jesus, appears, and that it was our guardian until faith arrived, and now we are no longer under the guardian. And so the Mosaic Covenant was never meant to be 
uh, a permanent covenant was always meant to be provisional until Christ came. He fulfilled it, and now we are under the new covenant, which has a completely different set of commands altogether. So um, you, you you covered a whole lot of ground there, and that's fine. And I and I really don't want to turn this into any kind of a debate uh, here on, on our program. But at the same time, I want to just clear up a couple of things. In, in, in Hebrews 9, it seems like, you know, obviously there wasn't chapter and, and verse uh, distinctions. And it seems like if you take those out in, in the beginning of 9, the, what he's talking about is the tabernacle and, uh, and, and the things within the tabernacle. So... Uh, it seems like Staley might have somewhat of a point uh, coming out of eight that he's actually referring to the tabernacle and the priesthood, but you don't see it that way. No, I don't. And see, here, here's where I think it's going back to an earlier question. Do I see a separation in the, in the Mosaic Covenant between the civil, ceremonial, and moral? The answer is no, I don't. And, so, and this, is, this then becomes very important, because uh, in Hebrews 9 and 10, it makes it very clear that there's been a change in the priesthood, and, um, and all of this is because all of the sacrificial system of the Mosaic Covenant was pointing to the reality, the reality was Christ, that Jesus is the temple, he's the sacrifice, and the, and the sacrifice of animals could not really forgive sins, but we are saved by the better sacrifice of the new covenant under the new priest, and that's Jesus, who is not a priest according to Aaron, but a priest in accordance with the, with the priesthood of Melchizedek. Okay. Now, why has this become important, then? The reason this is important is for this reason, is because the people today who call themselves Torah observant, I would argue you're not even close to being Torah observant, for the very reason that you do not go to the temple to offer the sacrifices required by the Mosaic Covenant. In fact, over the, over the weekend I had the opportunity to have a conversation with a gal who is very much into Jim's theology, and I asked her straight up, I said, if the temple were rebuilt today, would you travel to the temple every year to offer sacrifices there, animal sacrifices? Her answer is, absolutely I would. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem. And so, uh, in fact, that is a huge problem. Okay, wait, Very- we're actually going to talk about that uh, in a few seconds, but I want to, uh, before we do that, uh, like I said, you covered a whole lot of ground, so let's go back. You brought up Galatians 3, and I was actually a little surprised by that. How do you reconcile uh, Galatians three fifteen through 17 that a subsequent covenant does not annul a previous covenant? Okay, let's read it in context. What verses are we looking at? Three fifteen through 17. Okay, good. Okay, so here's, it's a reference issue, Okay. So here's the question, okay, we'll go back to 10, we'll look at this in context. Here's what it says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law. So now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. This is important because it makes the distinction between the Mosaic Covenant and the, uh, the covenants of the promise. Uh, it's because the covenants of the promise are all, are all fulfilled by faith. This one isn't, okay? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham, notice the covenant that he's pointing to here, mm-hmm. the Abrahamic covenant, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, not offsprings, but offspring, does not say offsprings, and your offspring who is Christ, 
this is what I mean. The law, the Torah, the Mosaic Covenant, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So here's the idea. The Mosaic Covenant, which shows up 430 years later, Paul is arguing cannot annul the Abrahamic Covenant, which was given 430 years after that. That was not its purpose. So the idea then is, is that the, 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 uh, in the book of Galatians, the covenant of note is the Abrahamic covenant because it is the covenant of the promise. And it's, and it's reiterated in, uh, with Isaac and with Jacob. And so, you know, it's kind of reiterated several times in the, in, in the book of Genesis. So the idea then is, is that when the Mosaic covenant comes on the scene, it never had the power to annul the Abrahamic covenant. That was not its purpose. It was added because of transgressions basically to keep Israel under control until the seed would show up. Okay, that so, was its purpose. So with that, with that all in mind, and you, and you said earlier that, uh, that the, uh, you know, the sacrifices don't take, don't take away sin, obviously. We, we would agree with you on that. Uh, so then uh, I, I can only assume... And uh, maybe I shouldn't assume, but I can only assume that you would say that that uh, King David, for instance, let's just take King David, was was saved by by faith in the in the Messiah to come. Am I correct? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. So, do you believe that he was quote unquote under the old law? Uh, as as the king of Israel, David was as much under the Mosaic covenant as Jesus himself was. Okay, so uh, expand that a little bit. Do you believe that, that uh, King David needed to be keeping the, the kosher laws, the laws of Sabbath, and etc.? Absolutely. Absolutely he had to. He was under the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, now, keep in mind, it was provisional and temporary. That was the idea, to keep Israel under control until the seed would have arrived, and that's Jesus. So David, just like Joshua, just like Moses... And just like all the generations from them until Jesus, they were all under the Mosaic Covenant. And so they, 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 couldn't, they couldn't pull themselves out from under it if they wanted to. And the whole point of it was is that Jesus then shows up and he does what none of them can do. He fulfills the law in its entirety. In fact, when you read the book of Matthew, with the understanding that Jesus is Israel reduced to one human being, Okay, this is the whole point of the, of the prophecy in uh, Matthew 2, which says, Out of Israel I have called my son, which shows us the true meaning of what that passage in Hosea is talking about. Um, he's the one who fulfills it all, and by fulfilling it, he's then able to annul it and to put it aside, because you know, it was always intended to be provisional. And so, we now are under the New Covenant, the New Testament, in Christ's blood. So, but, okay, now, I, I want to stay on this for just a second, then we're going to move on. But, uh, so if, if King David was saved by faith through, the coming, for, through faith in the coming Messiah, then why was he required to keep any of the law? Because uh, he is a Jewish Israelite, and he is required to keep this, this covenant. That's, that's just the, how it goes. God made that covenant with the people of Israel, and David was one of their descendants and the second king, to arise uh, from uh, from that uh, tribe of humans, and uh, they were under that covenant. And by the way, that covenant could not annul the covenant made with Abraham. And so David, just like all of the patriarchs, was saved by grace through faith. And the Mosaic covenant was not given as a means of earning salvation. Instead, it was more or less kind of a covenant that dealt with temporal blessings and curses regarding uh you know you can almost think of it as like a tenant lease agreement for the uh for the holy land 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Could I, could I? Yeah, go uh, for it, Rob. Thanks, Chris. I, I know that it's, uh, you know, you know, probably are familiar with, with the position that uh, Caleb and I share in affirming uh, as members of the New Covenant that the Torah written on the heart and, and how we understand that and how that's expressed in our lives. Um, so I know that uh, coming, you know, on our little radio show here, uh, we're definitely not wanting to debate. We sincerely uh, are happy and blessed to have you here and to be able to share your thoughts on the debate and mm-hmm. especially just to help help others understand where you're coming from. Um, however, you did run through a whole bunch of scriptures, and, and so it's difficult to to... Obviously, we'd have to go through each one of these and make sure that we're we're reading them in the same way. You're, a lot of the readings you're taking for granted, it seems, and um, it, obviously this is not the forum to do that. But I, I would like to share regard back to Hebrews. I mean, I think Caleb and I are in agreement with you that um, as as the Epistle of Hebrews makes it clear that uh, you know the blood of bulls, you know, never can take away sin. So it's, that was never intended to that. And as you uh, pointed out, that uh, the, the tabernacle and the priesthood of Aaron, etc., is all, uh, as it says in the Epistle of Hebrews, it quotes, I think, in Exodus, you know, make these things according to the pattern I showed you on the mount. The idea is that there is this true reality that the tabernacle is... Uh, pointing towards, and it's it's referred to as a shadow, and uh, there's other words uh, used also to to describe that. However, when when it comes to this, uh, what you call doing, you know, the the elimination of the Mosaic covenant is, I, I want to kind of zero in on that a little bit because I think sometimes we, I think in terms of. Uh, Duplo Legos, right? If we, you, you know, you can build a few things using Duplo Legos, but you can only get, you know, it's not going to stay together. You know, and if you've got infants, it's great, or toddlers, but uh, eventually you, we need to use uh, smaller pieces, you know, and, and if we want to build uh, more accurate and more, um, you know, fun <laughs> and usable things out of the Legos. And, and so my, my analogy there is I think we need to do the same thing here. I think it, it just... Uh, to reflect on the epistle to Hebrews and the notion of what is changing. This word uh, protos or prote in the feminine is used a handful of times in the epistle to the Hebrews. And it's, it, there are at least four different feminine antecedents. One is diateke, of course, covenant. Um, but most of the time it's either uh, pointing probably to uh, the ministry, liturgia, or to um, uh, the priesthood is also a feminine noun, and also skene, the 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 tent, and and it's used uh, in a cl- in uh, kind of in a cluster in chapters eight, nine, and I think in, even into uh, chapter ten. And so I, I don't think it's 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 a home run to to just equate this first. With, with all the commandments of, of the Torah. Because I believe that, that when Paul says, by the Torah is the knowledge of sin, and he says in Romans, he says, by then, by faith, do we, do we abolish the Torah? 
Or to, but he, he says, no, we establish it. And the, the point is that what is changing in, in my reading of the Epistle of Hebrews is the external expression of God's law and a hard human heart that, that is rebellious to it. That's the state prior. And the state after is a new heart, a new spirit that is by only by like what you said, that by the one true Israelite who fulfilled Leviticus 18.5. And I think that's, and that's my understanding of why Paul quotes that. Uh, the one who does uh, them will live by them. And that's why he's resurrected. I mean, his resurrection that Paul starts the letter of Galatians with, he says, who raised him from the dead. That's because death could not hold him. There was no sin in him. God's standard for sin, God's law, in terms of if we understand Torah as God's instruction for what is sin and what is not, uh, does not change. I agree that it, that something has changed, and it's it's if we look at history, it's the priesthood has. I, I believe you know in a certain setting. Of course, I'm coming with a set of presumptions that we might not share. Uh, but my set of presumptions is that um, the temple was being wiped away. And there were Jewish communities, very literate, by the way, like you rightly mentioned, the Epistle to Hebrews is, is probably the highest level of Hebrew, or, or pardon me, of Greek in all the apostolic writings. Um, it's very evident this is a, a, someone very, very educated probably a priest, I, I, my guess, someone interested in the priestly structure. And they're, they're saying, let's look back at the written Torah. Let's look back at the Mishkan. He's not teaching from a temple. He's not teaching about the temple. He's teaching about the tabernacle. Okay, hang on just a sec. Now, now uh, let's give, you've said a lot to Rob, so let's give Chris the ability to uh, speak to, to what you've said. Right. And I, I would just challenge it based upon several facts. Number one, the immediate context in Hebrews 8 uh, is of 813 starts at verse 8, where the uh, apostolic writer of the book of Hebrews is quoting from Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And that's your immediate antecedent because he doesn't qu finish quoting until verse 12. And so let, let, you know, we can take a look at what's going on there. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord when I will establish a new diathekene, the new covenant. That's what he's saying. And so when you're looking here in the Greek, the antecedent in verse 8 of kaine, which is picked up again in verse 13, is the, is the new covenant, diathekene. This is what is talking about here. And so that being the case, that's the reference. And uh, this is the reason, then, this gives explanatory power as to why all of the modern English translations, and I would even argue, uh, when you, uh, you take a look at the Latin Vulgate, you take a look at the, uh, the Peshittas and, and other translations, they're all seeing the same referent as the New Covenant. There's, there's a reason for that. It's because in the Greek, the, you know, it, what's being referred to here, the, uh, the referent to Kine in 13, is, the, is found in verse 8, and it's the new covenant that's... Oh, I, I don't have... I, I do not have a problem with that at all. Um, the kine, uh, as a matter of fact, because, because the word kine is even used in the actual, quote, 
from Jeremiah. I'm talking about the word prote, which is first occurs back in, in verse 6 and verse 7, prior to the citation of Jeremiah. I think the quote from Jeremiah is brought in to support that um, uh, the first had been, he says, if the first had been faultless, there would not have been occasion to look for a second. And I think the context here is priesthood and or ministry. These are the two feminine nouns that are uh, more likely candidates, in my view, given the fact that he's everything up to now is contrasting that the priesthood according to the sons of Aaron and the priesthood by the word of the oath, which is the uh, priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek, that, that this is the great contrast. As a matter of fact, I think uh, that's why he starts chapter 8 with, now the point in what we are saying is this. I mean, he ties it down right here. We have such a high priest that he's explaining to these Jewish believers where their true hope is when they're seeing you know, the rug pulled out from the, the temple system. Okay, now, now hang on just a sec. So, I, I, so I, let me finish real quick, Caleb. Okay. So, so what's vanishing away, they're, they're seeing an entire world uh, being taken away as, Ro- as hostility with Rome in the land is increasing and um, the temple being destroyed. They, that's that's uh, the end of, of that priesthood. And, of course, it's been 2,000 years, nearly, and we haven't seen it since. But I, I don't see that as changing in the Torah, because just as the promise is that the Torah then is not changed in that it just, other than it's from the outside, ministered through external authority that have power to, to punish, etc., to an internal desire on the part of the new creation, the new believer, um, to then desire, according to the promise, to walk in his ways and to do his commandments, because he, there was no way that a priesthood in, under the sons of Aaron could ever uh, change the heart of an individual. They just couldn't do that. They can only uh, do their best to teach, but they too are faulted, faulty, limited, finite humans who by means of death cannot even continue. But now we have a, a one true priest who lives forever, who is, uh, intercedes for us and uh, writes his Torah on our heart, and that we have a desire to walk in his ways uh, without that external stick um, that was you know part of the power of the the priesthood of the sons of Aaron. Okay, hang on just a sec. Now we're we're actually uh, coming to the end of our time here, but uh, I, I want to let Chris respond to that, and then I have one last question. Actually, two last questions sure. for Chris. Go for it, Chris. Okay, real quick. Um, so I, I just want to make sure I understand that uh, the uh, the reference of uh, you know the antecedent of Kine in verse thirteen, he had no problem saying that that's the covenant. Now here's the reason why then the the parallel to it in the in the sentence. The first one, the proton, is obsolete, has to be the Old Covenant. And here's the reason why, is because it has to do with parallels. Um, yeah, just real quick, if you were to look at uh, Philippians chapter 2, where Paul in this uh, great passage talks about the deity of Christ, 
where he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others, having this mind in you yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who, though he was by nature the very form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. In that sentence here, uh, if Jesus isn't equal with God, the parallel that's being set up doesn't actually work. In Hebrews 8, the same kind of parallel exists. If you're going to take it and basically say the first is talking about the first tabernacle or the first sacrificial system rather than the first covenant, um, it doesn't hold up because what you're doing is you're moving down the taxonomies to avoid what's going on because we're two, dealing with two parallels. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one, first covenant, obsolete. He's not saying, in talking about the new covenant, he makes the first tabernacle obsolete. No, he makes the first covenant obsolete. Otherwise, the parallel doesn't work. The taxonomy doesn't work in the, in the sentence. And that's why I would agree with all of the scholars who point out the fact that this is talking about the parallel between the new covenant and versus the old covenant, and that the old covenant is the one that has been made obsolete. Okay, we'll get so that, that's how I would answer that. We'll give we'll give Chris the last word on that. I'm going to ask you two more questions. Where we are coming real quickly to the end of our time, uh, but uh, the first question is: At one point in the debate, Jim says that he will try to travel to Jerusalem three times a year when the temple is rebuilt. You respond that there is a difference in eschatology. Do you believe the the physical temple in Jerusalem? will not be rebuilt when the Messiah comes? And also, if so, what do you do with the book of Ezekiel and what seems to be a third temple? Uh, good question. Uh, Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48 technically are of the same type of genre as the entire book of Revelation. And so the, whatever the meaning is of Ezekiel 40 through 48, it is shrouded and covered up and deciphered or kind of encoded in symbolical language. And so in order to understand the true meaning, you have to unpack the symbols, and you don't do that by interpreting the symbols literally. For instance, like in the book of Revelation, we talk about the dragon. Well, that doesn't mean that in the last days that there's going to be a physical dragon on the earth. Instead, the dragon is a symbol you know, regarding somebody. So I, uh, regarding somebody. He's not physically a dragon, but he's symbolized by the dragon. Same thing's going on in Ezekiel. We're dealing, you have to unpack those symbols in order to understand what that passage is saying. Okay, last question for you. If you were asked to take part in another debate with Jim Staley, would you do so? Not anytime soon, only because of my current course load. Um, I'm working on a doctorate and a master's at the same time, so it would have to wait a while. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, hey, we want to thank you so much, Chris, for uh, taking the time to be with us. And, you know, we really appreciate you being willing to come on a show where uh, you know that we disagree with you on on this issue and other issues as well. But uh, you've been very gracious to come on our show, and, and we really yeah, thanks, appreciate it. thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. it. We, we appreciate hey, it. Anytime, guys. Uh, just, just let me know if you guys want to have another conversation. I'd love to do that sometime. All right. Hey, we'll be back right after this. You're listening to The Rob and Caleb Show. That's right. You are listening to The Rob and Caleb Show. And I just want to let everyone know, uh, we didn't let uh, Chris go because we didn't want to talk to him more. In fact, I didn't even get to all my questions that I had for him. Uh, but there were other things going on in our office. We do pre-record this show. And uh, so other people needed the room that I record in uh, because there was a video conference that had to go on. So we had to let Chris go so that could, so that could uh, take place. 
And now uh, Rob and I are coming back to kind of debrief over the interview with Chris. Once again, a huge, huge thanks to Chris Rosebro uh, for coming on our show. I know how uh, it can be to to you know be approached by people that you know disagree with you and uh, asked to do do stuff like an interview. So huge thanks to Chris. Um, was that difficult for you, Rob? No, no. And you know what? My hope is that even though we did, it might seem like we cut him off, I, I, I really got the sense that he really had a forum to really, really paint a, a clear picture of where he's coming from. And I think he would agree. Yeah, uh, I, I hope that he enjoyed himself, you know, and, the, and that he felt like he had a, a good form to be able to, to explain himself. And I hope that the people who listen to our show, um, you know, on a regular basis, at least, even though you might not agree with what, what Chris had to say, uh, maybe some of you do. That's that's totally fine. But, uh, you know, even if you didn't agree, agree with what Chris had to say, then, uh, you know, hopefully he was able to, to uh, expand on some of his ideas a little more. I will admit that at some points, while he was talking, I, I had to hold my tongue. I really didn't want to, to turn it into a debate between us and him. Um, but I was happy that you that you uh, jumped in with some of your thoughts on on Hebrews. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about in terms of uh, his? You know, he he obviously took the idea that uh, that the old has to be referring to the covenant because. Uh, of that that passage that was qu- that's quoted right. In well, the eight. idea too of 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 Torah. I mean, what we didn't even talk about the word Torah. He se- uh, he seems to have this idea that there are commandments in the given in the Torah, and then there are completely new commandments given in the what he calls the new covenant. You know, we didn't even clarify whether he thinks the New Testament is like a set of books. I, I'm assuming he does not. I no, explain he that. Recognize it, that the, explain that. You, you mean New Covenant is not the New Testament, or what? Yeah, yeah. Like that. Like what you know in Christianity, if you say, "Hey, do you have the New Testament," they'll say, "Yeah," and they they're thinking of a book, you know, of a collection of gospels and letters. Um, and I'm assuming that Chris recognizes that that is like a secondary meaning that has been, uh, you know, that has kind of come to stick. Mm-hmm. Um, that the New Covenant actually is. Described in Jeremiah thirty-one, you know, and that's that's what it is. It's it's the internalization, the the divinely uh, enacted uh, internalization of God's will in the heart of the believer. Yeah, uh, and that is uh, centered. It's Yeshua centric. It mm-hmm. centers on the work. You know the life and the the death and resurrection and ascension and, and ongoing intercession of Yeshua on behalf of his people, mm-hmm. and uh, so one thing that I, I think uh, could be clarified is just that in the Epistle to Hebrews, it's it's really clear to me that it's the priesthoods that are being contrasted, um, not not a change in Torah in terms of you know the, the new covenant says I will write my Torah on their hearts. So this idea of change that is taking place has to be understood from that context of the contrasting of the priesthood. And uh, I think, you know, he has an intuitive uh, grasp that somehow Second um, Corinthians chapter 3 also can be read with this, but I, too, differ from the way he's 
uh, interpreting that. And mm-hmm. he's taking a lot of his translations for granted uh, as if it's just a given. Um, but I like, you know, and, and, you know, The Letter Writer is a book that your father, Tim Haig, wrote. You know, I like, uh, I'd like to quote a little section here. It's actually on page 232 of The Letter Writer. Which can where, be found on TorahResource.com. Yeah, absolutely. And, and on page 232, Tim Haig quotes a friend of his, Dr. Uh, Robert Rayburn, who wrote his dissertation on, on that, uh, the contrast of the letter and the spirit in Paul's writings. And, um, Dr. Rayburn says, in our view then, I'm quoting, in our view then, if the two covenants are interpreted according to the sense of the entire section, that is 2.14 through 4, verse 6, it becomes clear that the distinction between the new covenant and the old covenant has nothing to do with the distinction between the situation before Christ came and the situation after, or between the religion and revelation before Christ and that after. It is rather the distinction between flesh and spirit, between the old man and the new man, between death and life, between condemnation and righteousness, between guilt and the forgiveness of sin. And that's from uh, Dr. Uh, Rayburn's doctoral dissertation, Mm -hmm. uh, which is from 1978. And I I really think that is, I'm I'm glad your your father included that in in his footnote there on page 232. because it does encapsulate what we're talking about here, in in my view, is that the change is the the Torah going from an externally um, enforced uh, political entity, you know, to where the individual is, um, you know, you'd be born under that, to where the the um, very cultural situation you're in, that there's government that is enforcing that. Versus, uh, and that's priest, right? It's the Torah says that it's the the priest that will teach God's uh, God's instructions, mm-hmm. teach you the way to go, and they also enforce the penalties. Well, on the other hand, you have the, the terms of the new covenant is that it's going to be written on the heart, and so the the individual is motivated out of joy of the Ruach HaKodesh, joy of the Holy Spirit, which is, you know, through whom we participate in the body of Messiah. And we have the desire to walk in the commandments of God and that that's a good thing, that it's a good thing. And I think that that's one of the uh, areas that we we could talk about, you know, sometime is just, uh, you know, it seems like, uh, among messian in messianic circles, at least those who are Jewish who are affirming that the Torah is for Jews only, that their desire to walk in the ways of Torah is good, and that there's a way of pro- uh, appropriate procedures for them, most mostly leaning on the halakha preserved by rabbinic tradition. On one hand, but if you're not Jewish, then that desire has to be refined in a different way. It has to be refined by, some would claim, submission to rabbinic authority. And it's only in submission to rabbinic authority can that uh, desire to walk in God's ways be properly uh, refined. And that's, uh, that's different than my take. Um, I think that the Torah is there. We have both the, the written Torah and we have the Torah being written on our heart. And that 
somehow those work together as I grow. I, I haven't ceased sinning, but I learn about what sin is through the Torah and the Holy Spirit aligns what's going on in my heart with God's Word, God's inspired Word, and there's a relationship there. As I walk, as I live with my family and our local community and uh, just other people generally, I learn to walk in the Holy Spirit and I learn more and more about God's Torah in that process. And um, whether or not there is a, a priesthood, you know, offering sacrifices is a, is another aspect to that. And it, and it is somewhat problematic. We would think like right now, you know, if, if, if uh, there was a temple all of a sudden, I mean, there's this hypothetical situation, right? If all of a sudden there was a temple, would I all of a sudden go offer my three, three annual um, regalim, you know, the, uh, my appearances, etc. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's, it's a hypothetical situation that's really hard to even talk about seriously because there are so many other factors that would affect our perception of of who we are and messiah and and whether or not that would be a good idea you know there's there's well, so many you know other things uh, be, you know, that it's hard to just take the the hypothetical and just say oh yeah i would i well, would be doing that you know there's there there was there was two things that uh you know we could have talked to chris for probably another hour honestly that uh just uh, hashing out kind of what he believes and 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 whatnot and he and he was gracious enough at the end to even say that he would come back on the show if, if we if we wanted him to um and and th- thank you chris for that um you know, two of the things that really kind of uh, that that stuck in my mind after we after we uh, let Chris go was uh, this idea that we're you know I asked Chris about was King David under the the, the law of Moses um, the idea of under the law uh, that whole that whole kind of uh, thought pattern you know am I under the law of Moses right now? Uh, well, even I would say no, I'm not, because I think that, that that term under the law means under the condemnation of the law. I believe that King David was a part of the new covenant. He faith in, in the Messiah Yeshua is the new covenant. Being uh, you know having that spiritual uh, and and not only that but having the Torah written on your heart and being taken out from underneath the condemnation of the law to be free to keep the law. Is you know without its condemnation, we are taken out from underneath the condemnation of law to be able to keep it freely without having to to worry about any condemnation, and we're and that's done through the blood of the Messiah, i.e., the new covenant. And uh, so, obviously, we've said many times on this show we don't believe the the new covenant is time bound. Uh, so Abraham was part of the new covenant, David was a part of the new covenant, Jacob was part, etc., etc. So well, do- I would wonder, like for those who say that that the Torah is done away, then it, if the Torah was done away, then how do we know what sin is in the world? I mean, even for those who haven't heard the gospel yet, um, uh, th- there is some way that God's law has to have its condemning power. Otherwise, there's no um, no ground to to point out sin well i don't i don't want to uh you know try to talk for chris and uh you know that wouldn't be right uh however i do think that one of the lines of thought on that is that anything that that is restated in you know the the 
uh, quote unquote New Testament is becomes the the standard of law. Um, so I think there I think there are problems with that. I agree with you, obviously, completely on that whole subject. The other thing the other thing that I uh, I really wish we would have had a little bit more time to talk about with Chris was this idea that the uh, that the temple in Ezekiel the third temple is metaphorical. I would be very interested to hear how how Chris thinks that uh, you know. All the dimensions, you know, there are so many different dimensions. How any of that is metaphorical, uh, you know, that that this needs to be this long and this should be 10 cubits and this should be, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, what metaphor does that have for our lives? Each one of those measurements. Yeah, and you notice I, I would agree with him on in terms of revelation, like the dragon, right, and, and things like that, that these – but he he – lumped Ezekiel, the end of Ezekiel in with Revelation, and then just went on to talk about how Revelation is metaphorical. Well, he never actually uh, went into Ezekiel and explained. You know, well, and the other, the other question that I really wanted to ask him that was a follow-up to the Ezekiel question, which I didn't have a chance, you know, we didn't have time to, to ask, was uh, what do you do with, with Zechariah when uh, all the nations go up to celebrate Sukkot? You know, there's obviously Shabbats. There's two main Shabbats uh, within within the festival of booths, and we see all of the nations going up with the, with the Messiah sitting on his throne in Jerusalem to celebrate Sukkot. And Chris is right; we can't we can't fulfill all of the Torah right now. We don't have a temple. We don't have a sacrificial system. But it seems like in Zechariah, people are able to complete and to celebrate truly celebrate the festival of Sukkot. So how is that possible without another temple being uh, erected? Sure. And you know, Yeshua, when he knocked over the money changers tables and he quotes Isaiah 56, you know, which is all about uh, non-Israelites, you know, non-Jews offering korba, uh, korbanot and, and mm-hmm. zevachim offering uh, burnt offerings, you know, uh, from Leviticus 1 and fellowship offerings, keeping the Shabbat, um, and these are non-Israelites, and that he's defending that. Um, and some some understand his knocking over these uh, tables as somehow symbolic of of the coming destruction of the temple. Um, and that why would he even say that if if Yeshua just took for granted that all this was going to be done away with? Um, if that's how he understood it, then why would he be quoting Isaiah fifty six? In, as a testimony against uh, the money changers and the temple system at the time. So I, I think that he definitely is looking to a time to return and to rule from Jerusalem. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know- see, I bet, uh, it seems like Chris um, doesn't read it that way. He, re- he does not believe in that. It, it seemed like, I don't know. Well, you know, uh, for if we have anyone hanging on with us who agrees with Chris, you know, I know that uh, Chris is, I, I think Chris will be advertising uh, that he's going to be on our program. And uh, at the very least, maybe some of his friends, maybe were listening to the interview. If you're still hanging on, uh, you know, when you're talking to people and, you know, we all get lumped together, don't we? The crazy, uh, the crazy sacred namers and the, uh, and the two house movement and all that get lumped together with, with, uh, you know, th- this, this umbrella of quote unquote quote, Hebrew roots. So yeah, there's a lot of different views within quote unquote Hebrew, Hebrew roots. But one thing that I can say is if you're ever talking to someone who believes that the Torah is, is still in, in act today, uh, the idea that we're no longer 
you know, that you're set free from being under the law is not necessarily the greatest of arguments. I, I totally agree that we're, you know, we're no longer under the condemnation of the law. We're no longer under law. Uh, we're, we're in the new... If term. you're in Messiah. If you're in Messiah. But if yeah. you're not in Messiah... Then you are. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh, okay. So that means the law still has to have its power <laughs> to condemn. But the idea is, is that, you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a very valid point to me to try to say, oh, well, you've been set free from the law. I absolutely agree I've been set free from the condemnation of the law. And therefore, I am... And, and that's one of the misperceptions, I think, of people who think that we shouldn't be keeping Torah is that it's this huge burden that we would have, you know, oh my word, I can't believe you'd want to keep the law. You know, Staley in the debate showed pictures at the very end of, of his family celebrating Arab Shabbat and whatnot. I know for me, my family and everyone in, in our community, the majority of our community, I don't know what it's like at your community, Rob, but the majority of our community here in Tacoma is is uh, predominantly Gentile. It's not that we have a bunch of Jews who've decided to continue keeping the law. It's that we, we have a, a majority of Gentiles now coming in and, and uh, celebrating and, and keeping uh, the commands of the Torah. And if you ask any one of them, uh, is this a burden for you? Do you think, you know, I can't believe you do, do this. Is this a burden? The answer is absolutely not. It's, it's one of our greatest delights. Uh, as as Jews and Gentiles, we find uh, just a, a, an extreme amount of joy in what people think. So so when I guess my whole point in saying that is is that when people say, "Oh, you don't have to keep the Torah anymore," <laughs> great, I get to I get to because I am in the new covenant and I'm a part of the new covenant and I the Torah mm. is now written on my heart and therefore it's a joy to do those things. And so when people say you don't have to keep the Sabbath anymore, the first thing I think is yeah, I've, I have to. I get to keep the Sabbath. Uh you know, I get to keep kosher. These are things that I I really enjoy doing and and I I enjoy doing them because uh, I f- I see them as the the Messiah and God setting us apart as believers sure. unto Him, and because He loves us, He's given us He's given us His commandments. You know, there's something that Chris said too, quoting Galatians three about uh, sanctification. So it's almost like he was positioned to argue that um, some in the in the Messianic movement might argue, well, sure you're saved by faith, but then you become sanctified through. Uh, the commandments. And so he's quoting Galatians 3 to say, see, you, you received the Spirit by hearing of faith, not by the works of the law. Um, but I, I think that we need to understand back to our, if any of our listeners, or listeners heard our episode several weeks ago, our episode, it's funny, I don't, I don't, our, our interview with Dr. Marty Abeg, where we talk about the works of the law and how uh, we understand that, that that is talking about uh, kind of man-made community rules, you know, based in some form or another on laws from the Torah in, in some cases, but um, we're nevertheless set up as community boundary markers that you are either inside or out, depending on your observance of these um, more or less what I would call arbitrary laws, although those communities at the time did not consider them to be arbitrary. Um, but uh, that's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about people who feel like they're being bullied into a man-made system and, and that they're going to be, they feel shamed or outside, as an outsider or lacking true knowledge or things, and therefore they start wanting to please men and jump through man-made hoops to be accepted by 
a certain group that seems to have the upper hand. And, and that's what Paul's talking about, in my view, in Galatians. Um, he's not talking about, uh, you know, keeping the commandments just in and of themselves. Um, and, and so that's important. You know, one, one thing I did like uh, about our uh, conversation with Chris is his passion for, for uh, articulating his position, his, the fact that he sees uh, value in the debate genre, you know, in terms of all mm-hmm. the noise that there is out there. And particularly in English, you know, we have all these Bible translations and all these commentaries um, and then all these other kind of uh, genre of Christian self-help that seems to be uh, <laughs> something that he wants to pierce through. And I, I uh, applaud him in that. And I, I ask God's blessing on his ministry to, to help bring clarity and to challenge people to dive back into the word. And, and that seems to be what he thought would be valuable in the debate. Um, because it, like you mentioned, I mean, it's like Jim Staley for more, most part was preaching to his choir and mm-hmm. then, and Chris was preaching to his choir. And, and so, you know, what's the game? Um, what Chris says is that people can dive back into the scriptures and search them for themselves. And I, I think that's a, a good point. And I'm reminded of the Bereans, you know, in Acts 17, um, who are actually Jews, by the way, you know, uh, Paul and Silas go to Berea and they go into the Jewish synagogue there. And it says that they received the word um, with readiness of mind. It says in the King James, they searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so, and many of them believed. And so I think that we need to also remember that the culture, you know, throughout Acts, they go from synagogue to synagogue. These were people that had been keeping the Sabbath for generations. They are, Friday night Arab Shabbat. You know, it might not be what what we think of today from an Orthodox Arab Shabbat. But you know, we know from the text and we know that how strong the culture is that that was just the deal. Mm -hmm. People people kept the Shabbat. The Gentiles that knew anything, any Gentile that knew anything about the scriptures of Israel found out because they came into a synagogue in the diaspora on a Shabbat. Mm -hmm. Um, and and that's where those seeds of faith were originally sown among the Gentiles was through that. And that's why in the book of Acts, sure enough, Paul's going from synagogue to synagogue. Um, why? Because that, it's on Shabbat. You know, he was in Corinth for, what, a year and a half, and he was teaching every Shabbat. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I think this idea that, well, it wasn't commanded there, um, you know, is kind of a, a bit of a problem for me because it, I think it was taken for granted that that it that there was a Shabbat. What came at issue, like when Chris quoted um, Colossians chapter 2, let no one judge you in food, drink, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I see that, that don't let these guys, these bullies like we're influencing the Galatians, don't let these other bullies who aren't really in Messiah come and tell you you're doing it wrong or that you... Uh, shouldn't be doing it or anything to that matter. It means just as much that as it means of, uh, you know, Paul telling them to not listen to people who are telling them to keep the Shabbat at all. I think I, my assumption, I guess, and this is where we come from a different basic set of presumption presumptions. My presumption coming to the text is that uh, the Jews that are had believed 
Messiah initially, were all keeping Shabbat and the mm-hmm. feast days. Mm-hmm. And those Gentiles that initially heard were also uh, part of, somehow connected to those communities, and that's how they heard about it. And it, that there was a, a very strong culture there. And by the end of the first century, that gets very much disrupted with the destruction of the temple. You have shifting of power. You have rabbinic, you know, alliance uh, of the early rabbis with Rome after the destruction of the temple to set up a uh, an official Jewish study place down in Yavne and and all this. Whereas the believers in Yeshua are marginalized and they're oppre- they're they're persecuted, and so they don't have the political power. They don't have the economic power even to define these kinds of symbols for the body Messiah, such as Messiah or circumcision, or such as Shabbat or circumcision or the feasts. And, and so they, they're dying for something different. Mm-hmm. They're, they're putting their life on the line just to confess the name of our King, Yeshua, and not bow down to any system of man. That's what they're dying for. And that's, that's what got the gospel. I mean, that's what the, the through today, why we have the gospel in so many different languages is because of those who have put their life on the line for the message of the scriptures. Um, whereas in the trajectory that develops under what we call rabbinic Judaism are Jews that put their life on the line for something like Shabbat or mm-hmm, the study mm-hmm. of the Torah. Yeah. That's what they put their life on. And so so they continue to cultivate a, a uh, heritage that really upholds Torah study as like the highest ideal, and we and you have to protect that at all turns, and 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 protect who we marry, you know, and protect this, protect this. They're protecting dying for a peoplehood, um, and not a message. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so anyway, that's just those are just some thoughts uh, that I have coming out of our interview. Yeah, no, I and and I I totally you know preach it, brother. I I totally agree with you. Um, if you have held on uh, through all of our interview and now this part of our show and you uh, think that we're wrong and you believe that Chris is completely right and you want to talk to us about it, send us an email, radio at com. I would suggest, however, that you take a look uh, at our website under the English articles. Um, our we, Torah Resource Radio is a part of com, and you can find tons of free articles if you think that we're wrong and you want to ask us about things like, uh, you know, Mark 7 or other passages, uh, maybe the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, you can do, so. You first take a look at our articles because that might answer some of your questions on how we approach those different, uh, those different topics. So uh, TorahResource.com, then find the English articles and uh, go from there. But you can still email us no matter what, RadioTorahResource.com. Hey, we had a whole lot of fun. Thank you so much, so very much to Chris uh, Rosebro, Rosebro, uh, for coming onto our show and uh, for being so gracious. And um, I hope that he enjoyed himself and had a plat and had a you know a good time and a- and felt like he had a good platform to be able to expand a little bit on the things uh, that he talked about during the debate with. Jim Staley, and it's interesting to me that we are all from, uh, you know, Rob and I might not disagree, might not agree with with uh, Chris and even Jim on some issues, but at the same time, we all have the same goal, and that is to exalt our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. Mm-hmm.